Greetings and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today we're going to be taking a look at an alternative hypothesis to the resurrection provided by Paulogia. And so I'm excited and can't wait to see what's going to happen. Stick with us. Okay, let's let's stop right there. Now let's go back to this lovely picture of the people evangelizing. I love to see people evangelizing, and I love it more when atheists draw pictures for me of people evangelizing and using resurrection data. Thank you, Paul. So in this episode, we're going to break down this alternative hypothesis. In the words of my co-host, Jonathan Pritchett, every time an atheist tries to present an alternative hypothesis to the resurrection, it gets shredded by Christian apologists. Now, I would never do any, any shredding or anything like that, because after all, if I did, it would be courteous shredding. I, I actually think a lot of apologia. I really like apologia as a person. I know I say that all the time, but I've actually had real conversations, uh, well, virtual conversations with apologia and uh, real conversations with uh, Shannon Q. And so uh, these are these are uh, interesting people. Uh, I think they they are smart. I think they do the best they can to uh, create a compelling channel. And I don't think they just go running headlong into these things slinging insults. I think they think through what they're going to say. And that makes for a more interesting video. And I think this is going to be a good one. So um, I don't want to spend too much time jawing about this. So let's just jump right in and see what Paul Logia has to say. Let's go. When presenting the case that Jesus rose from the dead, the Christian will often point to a set of historical facts which generally boil down to Jesus was crucified, people claimed he rose from the dead, and now the church exists. Now would an Okay, now now let's let's break that down a little bit more because we would he says it basically does that. I know what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, look, if you collapse everything they're saying uh, down and truncate it all, it comes to these basically these three things. But I think it's a little bit more than that. I think there's at least one thing uh, that that's really important. So he says Jesus was crucified. Well, Jesus died by crucifixion. There was an empty tomb. Jesus had presented himself as God's special eschatological agent. These are all things that are mentioned and are really important to the case. Now I don't particularly use the empty tomb, although we're going to say some interesting things about Jesus' burial here. It's not a part of my resurrection case, and I don't need it, I don't think, to overcome this. Uh, But I I do want to say that these other elements are very important. One of those that I mentioned was um, that Jesus thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent, which means God's special agent to bring about the kingdom. That's going to come up in just a few moments, so I'll just put that on the table and let's leave it sitting there for just a moment. People claim that he rose from the dead. Well, there were multiple appearances. The disciples were willing to die for the claim. The creed of the early church demonstrates that within one to three years after the events, people were claiming that he uh, was dead, buried, and rose again. So does it, does it, can you truncate it down to something like uh, people claimed that he rose from the dead? Well, yeah, you can, but you need to understand, you know, the, the pertinent elements, why these people say it and why it's interesting that they say it, especially in light of the fact that they were willing to die for their beliefs. And uh, lastly, now the church exists. Well, you got to take care of the rapid expansion of the early church, the dramatic changes in belief and worship practices. N.T. Wright breaks down seven of those, the willingness to undergo persecution and so forth. So there's a lot packed into these three things that he kind of says it all kind of boils down to these three. But uh, let's not get too hung up on that. Let's keep trucking. Actual resurrection of Jesus explain these facts? I suppose. But a supernatural explanation can be used to explain anything. Did an all-powerful being have a hand in starting my car this morning? It's certainly possible. But it's also possible that when I turned the key, a mechanical process drew air and fuel into the cylinders, a spark was ignited, combusting the system to begin the engine revving. We can't rule out that God started my car, but his involvement isn't necessary to explain my running car. 
Okay, so uh, this is where it's important to talk about the fact that Jesus thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent and was going around preaching uh, things that are uh, important about God and, and uh, the one true God of Israel and who he was and all these kind of things because it means that unlike your car apologia, this uh, message, this event has a religiously informed theater. That means that there's already religiously significant trappings all around this thing. There are no religiously informed trappings around your car. As I've said many times before, when Jesus presented himself as the Son of Man and presented himself as uh, God's special eschatological agent, which, by the way, universally the scholarship accepts. There's always outliers, but universally the scholars accept this. Um, then that that means that uh, it was as if he was walking around in his life holding up signs saying, just watch my life and just see what happens. And it was a religiously informed claim. So that means that he's, he's presenting himself as a certain kind of person. There's a religiously informed theater, as I've said to this. Uh, there's nothing like that with your car. Not only that, we do have a very... Uh, clear awareness of the naturalistic explanations of how your car, there's nothing miraculous or even seemingly miraculous about how your car works. We know how all of that works. So I think those two things are pretty important. And uh, but, but he's setting up, I get it. He's setting up to say, well, is there a naturalistic explanation for the events around the resurrection? I just think it's important to notice that this is not really directly analogous to the car situation because of the point about Jesus thinking of himself and preaching about himself and uh, that he's the, the uh, special eschatological agent. All right, so let's keep trucking. Is there a similar explanation for the existence and history of Christianity? No. Please indulge me for a minute and allow okay. me to lay out one possible scenario. Around 30 AD, the Middle East was littered with apocalyptic preachers, including one Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus said or did the wrong things at the wrong time to the wrong people and was crucified on a cross. As was a standard Roman practice for the crucified, Jesus' body was thrown into an unmarked grave outside of town. Okay, now let's stop right there because this is actually pretty interesting. Now, I, I let him get through with what he was saying there because I didn't want to cut him off. But I want you to notice that he has put, and you really can't see him clearly here, uh, but, but you can see him. Um, he's put three very interesting uh, citations on the screen in the bottom left-hand corner there. Now, he doesn't quote them verbatim. He doesn't quote them at all, but he does reference them. He, he puts these citations. But then he has an image up there of Roman soldiers putting dead bodies into a mass unmarked grave. Um, and he says this is this was the, the standard practice of the Romans. Well, let's let him hear. Let's listen again because I want him to be able to say it for himself. Okay. Standard Roman practice for the crucified. Okay. The standard Roman practice for the crucified is his body was thrown into an unmarked grave outside. His body was thrown into an unmarked grave outside of town. Now, at the end of the video, when he kind of summarizes everything that he said, he comes back around and he says that it was a mass unmarked grave. So um, where did he get this idea that it's a mass unmarked grave? Well, I want to put back up again these citations that are at the bottom left-hand side of the screen. Now, this can happen to any of us. We can all make mistakes like this, but I just want you to know that if, unless I'm absolutely missing something, and I checked with several other people to make sure I wasn't missing something, if you go to these three citations, you will find absolutely nothing in any of them about what the standard practice of the Romans was for disposing of these kind of bodies. Um, this passage in Josephus is talking about, it's Josephus talking about how we shouldn't commit suicide. Um, and then the Tosefta and the Mishnah in the Sanhedrin, uh, well, let's just take a look at those right now. Um, let me pull them up. 
this is interesting. The closest thing I can find, and the Mishnah, by the way, the Mishnah and the Tosefta, they, they fitted them in together because uh, there's a debate about this, but perhaps the Tosefta is giving you, uh, you know, kind of an unpacking of the Mishnah, clarifying some things. So what you have here is, uh, first of all, again, this isn't going to tell us anything about standard Roman burial practices because this is emphasizing what the Jews did. And so what we have here is in the Mishnah, so we've got in the Mishnah 6, uh, 5b. I'm going to start with 5b and just read the whole section to you. Furthermore, anyone who allows the dead to remain overnight transgresses a negative command. By the way, this is important for anyone who thinks that um, uh, that the Jesus was just left on the cross. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But um, Josephus points out that, and I, ha- I, could, I could read that to you, but Josephus points out that the practice of the Jews... Um, they, that is, this is referring to the Idumenians, a group of foreigners that Josephus considered impious and evil, <coughs> actually went so far in their impiety as to cast out their dead bodies without burial. Although the Jews are so careful about burial rites that even malefactors who have been sentenced to crucifixion are taken down and buried before sunset. Okay, so even crucified vic- victims uh, are, to, are to be buried before sunset. And, uh, you know, Bart Ehrman and others will try to say, well, Jesus was an enemy of the state. You know, the Romans did it their way and all these kind of things. The fact of the matter was during peace, during wartime, uh, things might have been different. But during peacetime, uh, the Romans would have uh, allowed the Jews. And they seemed we see we have every reason to believe the Jews, the Romans allowed the Jews to carry on um, with these things, at, you know, at their discretion. Um so uh, it's interesting to know that we have uh, found the bodies of some crucified victims. One of those was in an ossuary box, not in a mass unmarked grave. So, but, but so here it goes. Furthermore, anyone who allows the dead to remain overnight transgresses a negative command. But if it has been allowed to remain for purposes of honor, to bring wrappings or a coffin, there is no transgression. Criminals were not buried in their father's burying places. But two burying places were prepared by the court, one for the stoned and burnt and one for the decapitated and strangled. When the flesh had been consumed, remember this, the bones were gathered and buried in their proper place, in their proper place. The kinsfolk came and saluted the witnesses and the judges to show that they bore no ill will since the trial was just. They did not make open lamentation for the criminal they mourned, but only in their own heart. Okay, so the the two things uh, about a dishonorable burial like this is, number one, you're not to be buried in your father's grave your family grave, and you're not to, no one's supposed to publicly mourn you. They can do that privately in their own heart, but not publicly. Um, This is part of the punishment of the person who receives this capital punishment is that the punishment continues after death in a sense uh, because this person receives a dishonorable burial, all right? Um, And then, uh, so the Tosefta comes in with 9-8, uh, which this is going to sound similar because it's just clarifying some things. The sword with which a man is beheaded, the wrap with which he is strangled, the stone with which he is stoned, and the beam on which he is hanged were immersed for purification and not buried with him. When the flesh was consumed, there it is again. When the flesh was consumed, the messengers of the court used to collect the bones and bury them in a coffin. And even even if the criminal were the king of kings, he could not be buried in the burying place of his fathers, but only in that prepared by the court. Okay, so now what this is referring to, this is not talking about mass unmarked graves. First of all, it's not talking about the Romans with mass unmarked graves because this is talking about what the Jews did. Secondly, 
how what it's talking about is what's the Jewish practice of secondary burial. Secondary burial is when after the the body rots, basically they go in and take the bones, and then they take the bones back to some other burial place. And so it describes this even in the case of a person who's received capital punishment. And the archaeological evidence seems to indicate this. They don't. So the punishment, the dishonorable burial, is that you don't get to be buried in your family tomb, and no one is allowed to publicly mourn you. Now the state did have, or the the, the government did have, um, a pl places for these people to be buried. But uh, but it does. There's there's no clear, obvious indication that it's a mass burial. So um, I don't know where any of this comes from. This idea that they received. I mean, I guess there's a. You'd have to have two misunderstandings here, and this could happen to anybody, especially when dealing with ancient literature. Um, that number one, this is talking about what the Romans did and not what the Jews did. And secondly, that uh, this idea that there were two kinds of burial places uh, based on what kind of capital punishment you received, that we're talking about a mass burial. Uh, but, but I don't see how that would possibly work with secondary burial where you take the bones and then put them into a coffin again. So I want to move our attention to the Romans for a minute. But before I do, I want to also point out that if this secondary burial thing is happening, even with uh, crucified victims and people who receive other kinds of capital punishment according to the way that the Mishnah and the Tosefta describe it, then this secondary burial required time for the flesh to rot. So uh, the sources I have say about a year, which means that even if those two places that the court had assigned for those bones to be put into coffins and then placed in these burial uh, areas, even if one wanted to argue that those were mass graves, that was a year after the fact. And they would have to be able to locate the body um, or the bones of the body in order to move them there. So there would be no problem identifying where Jesus was so that detractors uh, could counter the resurrection claims by saying, look, here are the bones of Jesus. Um, so that's very important to mention. Uh, now, if one wanted to say, okay, fine, but the central point still is that the Romans treated uh, the bodies of crucified victims however they wanted to, and people wouldn't really be able to reliably find the bones of Jesus to produce them in such a case um, because of these mass graves. You know, whatever, we, whether, whatever you want to say about the citations from the mission and the Tosefta not being Roman, the fact is still that the Romans were known to have this mass burial thing going on. Um, I want to present to you some data from this book that you see on the screen right now, which is written by Craig A. Evans and N.T. Wright, Jesus, The Final Days, um, What Really Happened. This is a fantastic book. In that book on this section, Craig Evans writes that victims of Roman crucifixion were normally not buried but their corpses were left hanging on the cross to be picked apart by birds and animals. That this is the normal Roman practice is not in dispute here. So uh, Craig Evans is actually going to counter a criticism that is brought by people that want to argue that the Romans would have left Jesus' body on the cross. So this is a different objection than what uh, Paul is raising here. Um, so he's actually saying, this. people are saying that's the, that's the standard uh, normal, what's, what's the wording? Uh, the, for the victims, the Roman crucifixion were normally not buried, but their corpses were left hanging on the cross. And he says, people are saying that, but that this is the normal practice is not in dispute here. So this is the normal Roman practice, apparently by his enemies and coming from Evans himself. But he goes on to say, what is questioned here, though, is the assumption on the part of a few scholars that the hundreds, even thousands 
of Jews crucified and left hanging on crosses outside the walls of Jerusalem during the siege of AD 69 to 70 are indicative of normal practice in Roman Palestine. He says you can't, you can't go based on that. And he's going to tell you why in just a moment. We're going to look at that section. But what I want to say to you right now is if Jesus' body was left on the cross uh, to be eaten by animals, which was the normal Roman practice instead of these mass graves, then everyone could, could simply observe this happening to Jesus. And so uh, finding his bones, locating his body, mangled as it would be, would not be difficult. And of course, there'd be people saying, standing around saying, no, 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 we saw him get eaten by crows on the cross, you know. Uh, but let's go further. Let, let's, let's actually argue that, that there's reason to believe that he received the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, just as the Bible says. Um, he goes on to say, Evans goes on to say, peacetime administration in Palestine appears to have respected Jewish burial sensitivities. Indeed, both Philo and Josephus claim that Roman administration, in fact, did acquiesce to Jewish customs in his appeal to Caesar. Philo draws attention to the Jews who appealed to Pilate to redress the infringement of their traditions caused by the shields and not to disturb the customs which throughout all the preceding ages had been safeguarded without disturbance by kings and by emperors. Um, a generation later, Josephus asserts the same thing. The Romans, he says, do not require their subjects to violate their national laws. This is powerful. Now, what people will often do is to try and show that these situations with Josephus and Philo and all those kind of things are the exception. But it's the historical data that we have. So, in uh, looking back over all of this, what I think would have to be overcome by Paul's hypothesis, uh, the hypothesis would have to overcome... Uh, if Jesus were buried according to the Mishnah and Tosefta, there would be no problem for detractors to produce the body of Jesus. Also, the normal Roman practice of leaving crucified malefactors on the cross in plain view of detractors, that the evidence provided in the original video does not establish mass burial, that the actual historical evidence we do have mentions a member of the Sanhedrin itself requesting the body of Jesus from the Romans, and that there is evidence of the Romans acquiescing to Jewish tradition regarding such burials. So I don't think it establishes what he intends for it to establish. There's all kinds of good reasons to believe uh, that the tomb was empty. I've gone into that elsewhere, but it's not really a part of the case that I present. So I just want to leave it at this and let's keep trucking. Body was thrown into an unmarked grave outside of town. This Jesus had some followers while he was alive, but most disappeared into lives never recorded by reliable history, never to be heard from again, all except... Now, that we could talk about that, but let's just keep going with it for the sake of brevity. Simon Peter, and possibly John. For a culture without last names, there were a lot of people named John. Devastated after the death of his mentor, Peter may have suffered post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences, or... Okay, uh, post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice that in the... Um, I, I'm going to assume that because I think Paulogia is a... Uh, is like an illustrator or an animator or something. I'm going to assume that he drew these pictures. And they're fabulous, uh, by the way, Paul. Good job. Uh, but I want you to notice that uh, Peter debatably looks kind of old here. All right. This, this is not, you would not look at that guy and think that's a young guy right? That's a little bit important for what we're going to talk about next, because he's telling us that uh, in his hypothesis, Peter suffered from post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences. Um, and we're going to talk about those promptly, but first let's let him throw his data up on the screen. Or PBHE, a well-researched phenomenon documented in papers like these. With Okay, now I want you to notice something on the screen, all right? First of all, I want you to notice, uh, where is it? Let's see. All right, I want you to see here that the, this, this one is bereavement among elderly people. 
grief reactions, post-bereavement hallucinations, and quality of life. Now, I want you to look down at the abstract down there. Ratings of grief reactions, post-bereavement hallucinations, and illusions, and quality of life were made during the first year after the death of a spouse among 14 men and 36 women in their early 70s. We're talking about research done on people in their early 70s who are experiencing the death of a spouse. Um, those are two meaningful distinctions, but we'll only focus on one of them. And the fact is that we're talking about older people. Now, let's think about uh, the Apostle Peter. Um, Jesus uh, was 30 years old when he began his uh, ministry um, and continued it for three years. So it was typical among Jewish rabbinical uh, tradition that it, your rabbi would be older than you were. So it's reasonable to assume that Peter was younger than Jesus. Now, how much younger? Well, not too much younger because we, we learn later that Peter is married. So um, we, you could also do some things with when you think Peter died and going back that way, but uh, he's a relatively young man. The point is he's probably under 30. Let's just go ahead and go crazy with it and say he's 40. He's still a lot younger than in your early 70s, which is what these men and women in this research were, which means that this research isn't really relevant to the Apostle Peter because it's bereavement among elderly people specifically. Now, in this second paper, Post-Bereavement Hallucinatory Experience is a Critical Overview of Population and Clinical Studies, I would have highlighted this fact. A 30 to 60% prevalence emerged from the reviewed literature giving consistence and legitimacy to the phenomena described. However, though I would have mentioned that fact, you would have to, if you're going to be, if you're going, if, if you're going to present the whole story, follow that with the statement in the study. Um, however, current data should be cautiously interpreted given the limited number of studies and the many theoretical methodological biases. It seems likely from the present review that several heterogeneous entities hidden under one general term confound epidemiological data. So the fact is that this, this uh, there's a lot, I mean, when he speaks about it, and I don't think he's doing this with the intention to deceive, but when Paul speaks about these things, he speaks like this is all well-researched. This is all, hey, this is nailed down. And, and it, it, you know, it, we now know that when someone has this post-bereavement stuff, eh, this is kind of what happens. Well, this is all highly questionable stuff. And the one that's more specific is the one that's talking about elderly people. Uh, bereaved individuals and not someone the age of Peter. But let's keep going. With PBHE, a lonely, low mood, fatigued, anxious, bereaved person without history of mental disorder will have an abnormal sensory experience. In a okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. About a third of the cases, the individuals will report seeing, hearing, and talking to someone deceased. Okay, now let, let's back up a little bit here. That, that information that he just gave about these what are called multimodal hallucinatory experiences where you can talk to someone, you see a man, you hear them. Those are That data is from that first study, the one that is about elderly bereaved individuals. Again, that was the only focus there. That they didn't talk, This was not about the general population. So, um, so I, that, that, in, that data, it just isn't relevant so far as I can tell. Also, I'd like to present some data that I've come upon when uh, preparing for debates on this very issue, that according to the American Psychological Association, a hallucination is a false sensory perception that has the compelling sense of reality despite the absence of an external stimuli, whether auditory, visual, olfactory, or kinesthetic. Uh, multimodal hallucinations are very rare. Multimodal, again, being when you're uh, experiencing two sensory hallucinatory perceptions at once, like hearing 
uh, and seeing an individual such that you could talk to them. All right, 15% of the general population will experience one or more types of hallucination, females more often than men. And so not only is Peter not old, he's also not a female. And uh, the older one is the more likely that they're going to have this. All right, so, so what we have here are, are several pieces of data that are all very interesting that come together to help us understand why this sort of thing probably isn't the case with Peter. Now, let's go a bit further. There is an article from 2014 called Visual Hallucinations in the Psychosis Spectrum in Comparative Information from Neurodegenerative Disorders and Eye Disease. And it says this, hallucinations in multimodalities have also been noted in individuals with severe depression and with mixed psychiatric diagnoses, as well as a non-clinical adults and adolescents. Such co-occurrences of auditory and visual hallucinations suggest a common hallucinatory mechanism, which in combination with the specific sensory dysfunctions, Determines the modality of hallucinations. Now, this is what I really want you to get. It is important to note, however, that simultaneous or fused auditory and visual hallucinations are not a frequent occurrence. When you're seeing and hearing, this is not a common occurrence. In most cases, they are experienced at different times an auditory hallucination one day and a visual hallucination the next. Furthermore, when simultaneous auditory and visual hallucinations do occur, they are typically unrelated. And this is the example they give. And I just think it's fascinating that this is the example that they give. They say, e.g., seeing the devil while hearing the voice of a relative inside one's head. That's very interesting, isn't it? Suggesting that the mechanism for auditory and visual hallucinations in these disorders must be partly independent, though with some overlap. So Peter's not old. He's not a woman. Uh, for what it's worth, it's not a spouse that he's lost. Um, he probably is depressed, and we have reasons to believe that he is depressed, but let's just say that he was going to experience a very rare multimodal hallucination. Uh, even in such a very rare case, the multimodal hallucination really wouldn't be multimodal in the, in the way that we're typically used to thinking about it. These uh, auditory and visual hallucinations happen at different times, maybe even days, a day apart or more. And when they do happen together, in the very, very rare case, they aren't the same perception. So like you're seeing the devil, but hearing the voice of a relative in your head, like they don't, they don't sync up. Um, and in the very, very, very rare case, when perhaps they do and a conversation can be had, this is among the older folks in the, in the study that talked about people in their 70s. So this is when you add all of that together, each stage makes it even more implausible that this explains what happened with Peter. Now, uh, you might say, yeah, but it's, it may be very rare and ridiculously unlikely, but at least, Braxton, it's a naturalistic explanation. Well, that's fine, but uh, we're going to show that at each stage of this, as we have been showing, at each stage of this, just like with the uh, unmarked mass tombs and everything else, all, all these different things that we're talking about, that you're going to see a, 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 a highly unlikely uh, you know, basis for each of these pieces, so that in the end... Uh, you have all of these extremely unlikely pieces having to fit together to make an even more extremely unlikely alternative hypothesis to the resurrection. Or Peter merely decided that Jesus' message of the coming kingdom was too important and that he would take... Okay, so even though Jesus died, uh, the message about the coming kingdom perhaps was too important. In other words, he's saying, he said, uh, you may have missed it because of the way I'm chopping this up, but... Um, he said, or. So maybe that stuff with the uh, post-bereavement hallucinatory experience 
Or maybe Peter just, like, he knows Jesus is dead, but hey, this is so important, I'm just going to go start preaching it. In which case, either he's, um, he's, he's, he's either lying or what? I don't know. What, what's, the, what's going on here? What, how do you explain? Why is, it, why is this important if Jesus is dead? I mean, I'm not the first to say that, like he said, there were a lot of messiahs running around. And when your messiah kicks over, you go back to being a fisherman or you find a new messiah. So that's how that works. Take it upon himself to spread it in the wake of his mentor's death. At some point, Jesus' brother James joined the cause, along with one of the Johns. Okay, now he doesn't talk about the how interesting it is that James joins the cause, but we're going to come back to that in a few moments when we respond to how he explains Paul. Stories about Jesus began to spread, not primarily by Peter, but rather through the person-to-person evangelism of the day. Neighbors talking to neighbors, merchants talking to customers. These conversations were meant to recruit new followers, not relay an accurate oral history. So in the telling, details were expanded upon, embellished, or even invented each time they were recounted. As the movement began a life of its own, Peter the Fisherman was not around to personally affirm or correct the tales being told. A few years... Okay, let's let's stop right there. Now, let's go back to this lovely picture of the people evangelizing. I love to see people evangelizing, and I love it more when atheists draw pictures for me of people evangelizing and using resurrection data. Thank you, Paul. Um, so, so here's the thing. So there's a couple of interesting things he says about this. First of all, I, I think he's probably right. If you look at Acts chapter 8 and, and move forward from there, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, they which were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the gospel. We find out that uh, later that movement spreads further, and, um, and, and we've seen the evangelism that leads throughout the book of Acts. Uh, that, that probably is true, people talking to their neighbors and people telling what they know. Uh, what, he's, what he's missing here, is, well, what he's asserting here is that um, Peter was not there to, uh, not present to corroborate these stories or not, and Paul for that matter, but we're going to get to Paul in a moment. Um, he says that this is, you know, how these, it's not some, I don't know how you said it, but it's not some um, trustworthy oral history. Well, this plays on a couple of things. I think, I, I'm not sure a lot of people, I know that Apology is really well read, so Paul, I'm not picking on you with this, but um, I, I think uh, people often confuse oral traditions and oral histories. Um, an oral tradition is something more like uh, you know, a, a community kind of just passing things on that they know, and that can develop like fishtails as they go on. But in fact, what what I believe, and as Richard Bauckham argues that we have with uh, early Christianity, is that we actually do have an oral history rather than an oral tradition. I mean, obviously the oral tradition is there, but it is solidified by an oral history. And with an oral history, you actually do have certain tradents or guarantors of that history as it's going forward. We see evidence of this. If you look in the Gospels, you'll see the lists of the disciples. Um, even though some of those disciples might not be major players in a particular gospel, they're all listed there because those are your tradents of this testimony. Those are your guarantors. Even take Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul makes a point. Uh, Paul has made in his letters a point that that uh, you know this is the gospel that he preached while he was yet with you. That he he nobody added. If you go to Galatians, you'll find out nobody added to me about this. Um, they didn't add anything to me. They, you're doing good, Paul. Keep up the good work. Um, however, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, and perhaps 8, but 8 might be Paul tacking on his own thing, what you have there is uh, the creed of the early church. This is the creed that is accepted by scholars to go back to uh, within some one to three years of the events surrounding the uh, crucifixion, and some put it back even earlier than that. Some non-evangelical scholars put it back even earlier than that. So, uh, 
so the the point is, why does Paul include that? If if Paul's giving you a creed he got from somewhere, why does he do that if he's just telling them the gospel that he preached to them? Well, because this is coming from the home office. This is this is something that I want you to know that what I'm telling you is uh, consistent with, with, with the truth. We'll see this again in Galatians, and we'll go back to that in just a few moments. But Paul was very aware of this, and it seems like the gospels made sure about this. So uh, well, you might say, well, then what happens when they start to die? Well, one of the reasons that you have the gospels written decades after the fact is probably because these people were starting to die now. And the oral history would turn into just simply an oral tradition. And you could have those fishtails. So what they did instead was they began to write these things down while some of these people were still alive so that we can make sure that we had it down as it was meant to be so that we don't lose this. And so uh, it's not an oral tradition in the sense that it can develop like fishtails. There's a good case to be made that it's an oral history. In fact, we see toward the end of the first century, Papias, and the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, Papias is very interested in writing down uh, what he can write down in the living memory of these people. And uh, his works have survived in other authors. So there's a lot more going on, and uh, we have to deal with all that stuff. If you're going to build a hypothesis, you got to deal with all these facts. Let's keep trucking. He was not around to personally affirm or correct the tales being told. A few years later, a Pharisee named Saul was traveling around persecuting these new Christians, burying the moral guilt of his actions under the certainty that he was doing the will of God. But on his way to Damascus, he suffered a psychotic break, possibly some form of guilt-induced post-traumatic stress, manifesting in a vision of the allegedly resurrected leader of the group he was harming. So affected by this experience, Saul changed his name to Paul and began recruiting for Christianity and writing letters to churches outlining his theology. Okay, well, is this correct? Um, this idea is this phenomenon has been discussed by Richard Carrier and others as conversion, a conversion disorder. And uh, there's an article on this uh, from decades ago, Christer Sindahl. Um, uh, what is it? Something to do with the uh, conscious of the West, Paul and the introspective conscious of the West, I think. Um, th this has been dealt with for a long time. But I'm going to give you Gary Habermas's words on conversion disorder, and this deals with both Paul and James. And he kind of skipped over explaining James' conversion, so this will hit both at the same time. Uh, he says, simply a huge problem is that from what we know about Paul and James in particular, there were no mitigating grounds to suppose such a disorder. We have no indication that there was the slightest inner conflict, doubt, or guilt concerning their previous rejection of Jesus' teachings. Critics agree that James was an unbeliever during Jesus' earthly ministry, as John 7, 5, Mark 3, 21. Paul's skepticism is even better known since he persecuted early Christians, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Galatians 1, 13, and 23. But we do not know of any guilt guilt on Paul's part. For he considered his actions to have been both zealous and faultless, Philippians 3, 4 through 6. In short, there is no indication of any desire for conversion by either of these men. To suppose otherwise is groundless. In short, these men are exceptionally poor candidates for this disorder. Further, the psychological profile strongly opposes an application to any of these three apostles. Conversion disorder most frequently occurs to women, up to five times more often. Adolescents and young adults, less educated persons, those with low IQs, low socioeconomic status, Status or combat personnel. Not a single characteristic applies to Peter, Paul, or James. 
Further, holding that victims of conversion disorder are strong candidates for both visual and auditory hallucinations is stretching the case a bit. These are uncommon characteristics. Not only are these apostles poor candidates for the disorder in the first place, but even apart from this malady, they were additionally not predisposed to experience hallucinations. And here we have... Um, and here we even have two separate critiques due to very different sets of circumstances. There is no indication that either James or Paul in particular longed to see Jesus. Their unbelief is a poor basis for producing hallucinations. James the skeptic and Paul the persecutor are exceptionally tough obstacles for the hallucination thesis. Once again, to say otherwise is mere conjecture apart from historical data. So I think that this kind of handles this idea that this conversion disorder takes care of this. I think these are good things that you got to consider and you got to deal with the facts about these guys. But one thing I want to point out as we're moving along is for the first time now, I want to introduce what are known as the historical criteria. For those that may be unfamiliar, when historians are trying to figure out what likely happened in the past, there are several things that they use to try to make those uh, determinations. The hypothesis needs to have something called explanatory scope. Explanatory scope means that the hypothesis accounts for a broad number of details. Um, and then it also has to have explanatory power. Explanatory power means that it fits easily. Like you don't, it's like a puzzle piece that you have to force in. It's not like that. It just slides down in there. It has to have plausibility. It has to be less ad hoc. Um, all these things are very important. Well, so far, are we seeing a case here that has these things? No, Paul has to, uh, with the explanatory scope and explanatory power, Paul has to, Paul Logia has to go around uh, creating two separate hallucinatory experiences of different sorts that are both exceedingly rare and don't match the profile of the persons that you're trying to, uh, to to deal with. So it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Is it uh, less ad hoc or is it more ad hoc? Ad hoc means basically you're just having to um, presume something or you know just, just make something up to fit the hypothesis that you don't really have uh, good evidence for. Well, is it less ad hoc or is it more ad hoc? Well, it's certainly not less ad hoc. It's more ad hoc because you're having to uh, come up with these disorders uh, that are completely foreign to the text. Um, is it plausible? Well, as I think we're beginning to see right now with all the different things that, that you're piling on top here, um, that are each one, you know, incredibly unlikely. I think we're seeing that this becomes less plausible as we move through the material. So let's just keep going now and let's see what he has to say next about Paul. Paul, Peter, and John once met in person to swap ideas, but in the end, they didn't actually see eye to eye on things. Okay, is that true? Well, uh, kind of. He put at the bottom of the screen, again, another citation, Galatians 2, but he didn't quote from Galatians 2. Um, he says they met once, and I want to get his words exactly right here. So let's, let's, get them, let's get them as Paulogia says them. Churches outlining his theology. Paul, Peter, and John once met in person to swap ideas, but in the end, they didn't actually see eye to eye on things. Okay, so he says they met once in person. They didn't just meet once in person. In Galatians chapter 1, it describes Paul after his conversion, which uh, scholars think happens between one and three years after the events of the resurrection. Um, uh, so uh, let's just say, let's just split the difference, say two. And then um, he says he didn't talk to anyone for three years. So now we're five years out. But then after that, he does go to talk with them. And so he talks with them then. Everything's fine. Uh, right hand of fellowship, everything's good. And then in Galatians chapter 2, the very chapter that Paulogia references, uh, Paul meets with uh, Peter again. And, and again, we, we find uh, that they receive, you receive the right hand of fellowship, everything's good. Um, and he, make, he makes this very clear. And then in Galatians 2, we do see the, this instance where Paul and uh, 
Paul talks about how he confronted Peter uh, about the matter of circumcision. Uh, but then again, in Acts chapter 15, what is known as the Jerusalem Council, which takes place, and I'm prepared to argue this, after, the, after Galatians, we find uh, that Paul was... Uh, Paul and Peter's talking like Paul. Paul and Peter are getting along just fine. Now, this brings up another problem that we've got here. And this problem is that Paul Ogia seems to absolutely be cherry-picking his evidence from the pages of Scripture. He's picking the elements from the scriptural account, whether that be the Gospels or Acts. He's just picking whichever things suit his hypothesis and ignoring the rest without giving us any reason why those things should be considered historical and why the other things shouldn't. So I think all of these things are very important and, and somewhat damning to this hypothesis. After several decades, a variety of Greek-speaking people who never met Jesus, or even Peter, took it upon themselves to begin writing down some of the stories that had circulated about Jesus and the sayings attributed to him. These written fragments were later compiled into what we now call Gospels, including some links to Old Testament themes, some explanations about how the guy people knew from Nazareth could also be from Bethlehem, and activities they imagined post-resurrection Jesus did. A great okay, now before we move on to this, uh, let's just get our slide right because I love these illustrations. Okay, so here we have these gospel authors. Now, um, here's the thing. These, the, the majority, a slight majority of scholars uh, disagree with this. A slight majority of scholars affirm that uh, with Mark, someone named Mark uh, wrote the gospel of Mark and was giving you the testimony of Peter as he remembered it. Okay. So there you do have eyewitness testimony from Peter that this person who's writing Mark uh, is giving you. That's the slight majority of scholars. With uh, Matthew, the slight majority does not agree, uh, but Papias writing toward the end of the uh, first century that I mentioned a moment ago, he actually does mention that uh, Matthew wrote something. Now, who knows what Matthew wrote? There's actually a theory floating around that the Q material uh, that is shared by Matthew and Luke is actually, which is considered to be sayings passages, was written by Matthew. And there's uh, there's all kinds of arguments people give for that or reasons that they think so. Uh, in which case, you would actually have someone writing things down, right? Uh, but Papias tells us that Matthew wrote something, so why not Matthew? Uh, I don't know what, why the slight majority of scholars don't accept that, but it seems reasonable if Papias tells us Matthew wrote something. Um, and then uh, Luke, the slight majority, believed that someone who was a traveling companion of Paul and had access to the, some of the disciples of Jesus wrote the book of Luke. Now, uh, to, to my mind, traveling with Paul and access to some of the disciples. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a Luke, okay? Um, and then with John, the slight majority of scholars believe that a lesser-known disciple of Jesus, uh, yeah, a lesser-known disciple of Jesus uh, wrote this as a testimony, or someone's giving you the testimony of a lesser-known disciple of Jesus. So, um, the, these are the facts that we have. At least with Mark and Luke and John, you have good reason to believe that you're getting uh, eyewitness testimony from people, e even if just indirectly from people who who uh, could give you eyewitness testimony. And I think with Matthew, there's a case to be made too. Also, from 200 AD, we have these names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, attached to these Gospels, which is kind of an odd thing that you would pick those particular characters uh, if you were going to just make this up. And those people back then were closer to the events than people today are, obviously. So there's a lot of good reason to believe so. Now, by the way, last time I mentioned this, that a slight majority of scholars believe these things. 
uh, about the the gospel writers, I was challenged by some internet atheists and some other atheist YouTubers uh, for my sources on that. And I had uh, remembered that I got it from Mike Lycona, um, but I had incorrectly said that it was a thing that Mike and his uh, son-in-law had researched out. That was a, a separate issue. But I texted Mike today to see uh, what are my sor- what is my source for that? He said, for Mark, I have a student who's doing his MA thesis and now has documented 204 critical scholars on the matter since 1965. So there's your source for that. Um, and it'll be published in the future. For Luke and John, those are Keener, Craig Keener's observations and can be read in the introductory material in his commentaries on John and Acts. Um, so there you go. Uh, so there is, you can go at least with uh, Luke and John, you can currently go um, and check out what uh, Keener has to say about that in those commentaries. And with Mark, you can contact Lycona and, and perhaps or his student, or you can just wait for that to be published. But it's all there. And so what Paulogia gives us here does not agree with what the majority, uh, albeit a slight majority of scholars, think about this. And even if it were the case, it doesn't mean that we don't have eyewitnesses because uh, there is this device that was used um, that Richard Bauckham argues is used in the Gospels that was used in some cases by some ancient writers called the inclusio. That's where you bookend a particular pericope or a book book that you're writing with a particular character, citing that that's where you got your eyewitness. That was your eyewitness for this thing. Um, You also have those gospel tradents that we mentioned before. Um, And so these are all interesting facts that need to be taken into consideration. Uh, But this, you know, kind of just dismissive idea uh, about how these were written, uh, I I don't think uh, deals with this in a sophisticated way. All right, let's see what he says here. A great many gospels were written. Each author who compiled a new version expanded upon Jesus's power and his divinity, going from a preacher who did miracles only under very low profile to the co-creator of the universe who performed publicly at the drop of a hat, to someone who killed and resurrected people out of spite, to a powerful resurrected military man with an anthropomorphic giant talking cross as his sidekick. Okay, uh, now let's let's talk about this for just a minute, and I actually need to... Okay, so what I want to read to you here is from uh, Lydia McGrew. Uh, her, her, uh, she's written this up. What I want to argue is, first of all, let me go back for just a second. What we have here is uh, an idea, I want to get the graphic again, uh, that you have this fishtail. You know what a fishtail is, like where somebody's uncle um, pulls a fish out of the pond, and, you know, it's like that big but by the time he's told it to his wife and his kids and then the guys at the local coffee shop you would think it's it's grown bigger and bigger as he's told the story over and over again and you would think that someone pulled uh, a catfish the size of a volkswagen out of the city pond right um that's what they say happened between mark and john now infancy and peter don't even need to be on this list i mean that's not that's not those are not considered to be legitimate the only reason you would add those to the list as far as i can tell is because it gives you more of a nice arcing up like that what i want to say about this is first of of all, um, if these Gospels are written in Greco-Roman biography, if that's the genre, and um, if they're not written in Greco-Roman biography, the majority of scholars do believe they're either written in Greco-Roman biography or something that has great affinities with Greco-Roman biography. And in that in that uh, vein, you can you can you know, be somewhat artful. They had different literary conventions than we do today. And in Mike Lacona's book, uh, Why Are There Differences in the Gospel? You can actually read about those and find out, you know, all of them and, and, and look at the spotlighting and the conflation and the compression and all, all these different things that they have. Um, so w- with this, what we see here is 
John, if John is giving you the testimony himself, a lesser known disciple of Jesus named John, or if it's John the son of Zebedee, or if it's someone giving you the testimony of a lesser known disciple or of John the son of Zebedee, and they're writing in that vein, if they've got the eyewitness there, they can they could use uh, more of these devices. Uh, and that could be misunderstood by someone who doesn't understand the genre as someone doing the fishtail thing. However, I want to make a more potent uh, criticism of this. And that is that while this is a very common objection and criticism to what's going on, you could actually take particular pericopes in the various gospels and, and take any arrangement of the gospels. And with particular stories, you could show that it looks like this fishtail thing is happening. Uh, straightforwardly, what I mean is you could put John at the beginning and Mark at the end, and you could show a stair-stepping up like that with any uh, of the Gospels in any arrangement, depending on, and I'm talking about the four Gospels here, not the last two that he has up there, uh, depending on the story. To give you an example of this, back to the Lydia McGrew article, debunking the claim of development in the crucifixion narratives. All right, she's going to give you some examples here. In particular, uh, well, let's see down here. Let's go down here. In all the synoptic gospels, including Mark, Jesus says to the Sanhedrin, when asked if he is the Christ, the son of God, you shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power. In fact, the wording in Mark, which skeptics themselves generally take to be the earliest gospel, is one of the strongest. I am, and you shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Note that Jesus says this despite the fact that he has predicted his crucifixion in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Therefore, not only does Mark not portray Jesus as surprised by his death, or as seeing his death as a terrible and meaningless tragedy, Mark portrays Jesus as defying the Jewish leaders on the very eve of his death and predicting his own ultimate vindication and power. These statements to the Sanhedrin, number two, are not found in John, the latest gospel. So in this area, there is exactly the opposite of any development of Jesus into a stronger, more godlike, or more in-charge person in the Passion narratives. Three, all the synoptics record, A, the darkness from the sixth to ninth hour of Jesus' crucifixion, B, the rending of the veil of the temple, and C, the statement attributed in Mark to the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. This is far from portraying the crucifixion as meaningless. These indications in the synoptics strongly imply a deep theological meaning in Jesus' death. The rending of the veil in the temple implies that his death had some sort of heavy theological effect concerning the Old Covenant. We can be sure that if these events occurred in John, the last gospel written, they would be used to argue for development of Jesus, of Christology, and of the gospel writer's view of the meaning of the crucifixion. Yet they are in the earliest gospels. And for John, the latest gospel, does not record the darkness, the rending of the veil, or the statement, surely this was the Son of God. Five, of all the Gospels, only Matthew states that the dead came forth after Jesus' crucifixion. Regardless of whether one thinks that this really happened or not, the point is that it is a counterexample to an alleged pattern of gradual development of significance from the earlier to the later Gospels. Even Luke does not include this claim, and John certainly doesn't, though both are later than Matthew. But Matthew includes it along with the rending of the veil of the temple. Again, we can be sure that if Matthew were independently known to be the latest Gospel, this would be used as evidence of the alleged pattern of development. Of all the Gospels, number six, only John, the latest, records the most human admission of physical pain and weakness in the words from the cross, I thirst. Seven, we're almost done. The, 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 the three noble words from which apparently the skeptics are attempting to build their developmental thesis are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise, and into thy hands I commit my spirit. But in fact, these are recorded only in Luke and not in John. John has the more ambiguous, it is finished, just before Jesus breathes his 
is last. In John, Jesus is not shown asking the Father to forgive those who crucify him and is not shown offering a place in paradise to the thief on the cross. So what is the developmental thesis? That Jesus got nobler abruptly in Luke's portrayal for some unknown reason and then less noble and more pathetic and human in John's later portrayal? There's more there that you could read and you can go check out that article. I'll link it in the description. But I just want you to see that you can take different arrangements of these gospels and make this same case with any arrangement. Uh, and the last two that are mentioned here just shouldn't even be on the list because they're not considered to be legitimate. And uh, the only reason I can think that you put them there other than they make for really good illustrations, I particularly like the Rambo Jesus with the Disney animated cross that's going to fight alongside of him there. But it's to make this ramping up of, of, the, uh, of the grid there. Let's keep going. Anthropomorphic giant talking cross as his sidekick. On occasion, some of the early Christians were troublemakers and suffered consequences because of their disruptive behavior. But generally, early Christians had a very live and let live existence. And okay, I, I could I could comment further on, on a lot of these things, but for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to keep going here. Only relatively infrequently were bothered because of their ideology, though unfortunately it did happen sometimes. They were accepting of people, kind to the poor and widows, and so grew in numbers. Centuries later, in 303 AD, Christianity did become illegal in Rome for a while, but 10 years later it was given legal protection and soon became the Roman Empire's first official religion, which is when it really took off into the institution we know today. In short, to account for the established history of Christianity, we need only a single disciple to claim Jesus rose, a later convert who hallucinated the same, and an urban legend to spread. Now, no, that is not all you need. And just those two that you're just referencing right now, Paul, uh, you have a ridiculously unlikely bereavement hallucination in Peter that not, not, I'm not even saying that it's ridiculously unlikely that he would have a bereavement hallucination. I'm saying that a bereavement hallucination of the sort we're talking about, each step of that gets more and more unlikely. Then you have this conversion disorder hallucination with Paul that is also ridiculously unlikely. Neither one of these guys are good candidates for that. And all the other things that we've mentioned, I, I won't recap them all again right now because we get to do that again in the summary in just a moment. Everything that happens in this origin story I just told is fully consistent with the way first century Rome operated. Cons it's not. It's not because um, did they ever engage in mass burials? Perhaps. But we actually have good reason to believe that at that point in, in their history, they weren't doing that. And with the case of the Jews, they seem to be very agreeable to letting the Jews handle these things on their own. Um, it was in wars, in wartime, not in peacetime, that you would have had more of a, a likelihood that the Romans would have taken charge and done things just however they wanted. So no, it's not in line with how the Romans did things. Um, and it's not in line with the fishtails, as we see on the screen right now, because of the reasons we talked about with uh, the eyewitness testimony, the, what the scholars think about um, the eyewitnesses and, and the, the tradents and the inclusio and all those things, you can go back and listen again if you like. Consistent with basic human nature and consistent with the spread of every other past and present world religion. Most I have multiple videos showing how Christianity and its growth is different than those of other, uh, other world religions, so I won't get into that here, but, but no. Most of which you do not think receive supernatural help to get where they are. Every aspect... Oh, wait a minute. Hold up. Hold up. Whoa, back that up. I don't think that other religions had supernatural help to get where they are. I absolutely do, and any Christian should. Any Christian 
who believes in the supernatural and believes in God is probably going to also believe in things like angels and demons. And that the idea that there could be demonic influence in these other religions, absolutely, I believe that that is possible. I mentioned in the response to 15 atheists um, just a couple of videos ago that I, I actually think that uh, when a Mormon comes up to me and says that he experiences the burning in the bosom and says, who are you to tell me that my experience wasn't legitimate? I'm not telling you your experience wasn't legitimate. I just want to know the content of that legitimate supernatural experience. How do I know that wasn't some sort of demonic activity? And when I look at the origin stories of Mormonism and uh, uh, Islam and uh, Buddhism and... Um, I mean, just look at the origin stories of Siddhartha and, and what happened to him under the tree um, and uh, look at the uh, uh, stories of, of what Muhammad thought was happening to him early on. Uh, we have every reason to believe that there is supernatural stuff going on in these stories. The fact that this story is mundane, boring, and exactly what... It, first of all, even on your reading, it's not mundane and boring. Uh, the idea that two guys uh, around the same ev same sort of event or with respect to the same event both had very different and very unlikely hallucinations, that's extremely interesting, not at all boring. Um, but, you know, I guess to each his own. But these facts, the way they really bear out, aren't the way that we've seen portrayed in this video, I don't think. And I want to be clear again that I don't think that Paul Ogia is trying to be deceptive. That is not at all what I think. I believe he believes this. I believe at least he's presenting this as a viable defeater to the claim. Okay, I don't think he's lying. I don't think he's being deceitful. I just think he's wrong. And in being wrong, these things aren't mundane. The truth about them is incredibly world-shaking. But you would expect, with no resurrection required, it explains every fact you may have empty tomb part of the legend wait a minute wait a minute the resurrection hypothesis slides nightly uh, nicely in remember explanatory power it just fits right into the groove here what you've got to do is you've got to shove all these things in uh, all these different pieces that aren't directly connected with one another different hallucinations uh, a different explanation for the empty tomb all kinds of things that don't seem to fit whereas the resurrection slides nicely into place and fits well and if you want to say well you know a supernatural a god explanation could resolve anything yes but but we're not talking about your car again. Remember, we're talking about a religiously informed theater where Jesus already talked about himself as though he was the special agent to bring about the kingdom. No one produced his body? Of course not. It's in an unmarked mass grave. Uh, it's not in, it wasn't in an unmarked mass grave. We dealt with that, remember. And remember that uh, I've mentioned before that he just said unmarked earlier in the video. Here's where he said it was an unmarked mass grave. So I wanted to uh, explain that. Uh, also, uh, the, the way the Romans, when the Romans did engage or, or may have engaged in this mass burial type stuff, they didn't cover it up. Uh, they didn't cover the top uh, of the of the mass grave up, and the Jews couldn't have uh, handled that. That would have resulted in uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness. People saw risen Jesus. Part of the legend. We have no record of anyone, save Paul's admitted vision, who both gives their name and claims to have seen him. Disciples died for their belief. There are no historical or even biblical records that say any of the 12 disciples did. Okay, now this is actually pretty interesting because 
I've talked with Paul a little bit about this. He doesn't buy um, Sean McDowell's dissertation, but you can actually access Sean McDowell's dissertation online. He teaches at Biola now. He's the son of Josh McDowell, and he did his doctoral dissertation on the deaths of the uh, apostles, and he provides that evidence, and you can actually take your time and go through it. It's, it's uh, very interesting to read, and he assigns, using the historical criteria, a likelihood. Now, he did this, by the way, under the umbrella of of at least one working historian, uh, New Testament scholar. And he assigns, he, he, he had a spread of possibilities for these, like historians will do with the historical criteria. He had highest possible probability, very probably true, more probable than not, more possible than not, possible and improbable. And he doesn't give them all the highest possible probability. Uh, with Peter and Paul and James, the son of Zebedee, he does give the highest possible probability. James, brother of Jesus, Jesus very probably true. John, the son of Zebedee, improbable. Thomas, more probable than not. Andrew, more probable than not. Philip, possible. Bartholomew, more possible than not. Matthew, possible. James, son of Alphaeus, more possible than not. Thaddeus, possible. Simon the Zealot, possible. Matthias, possible. And when he does this, he actually lists out, I've got right here in front of me, all of the uh, sources that, that he gets this information from that he used in his research. And you can do that. You can just go search for his dissertation and check that out. Now, uh, Paul Ogie has told me that he doesn't like uh, Sean's deal. It wasn't, didn't find it convincing. But if you're going to make a video like this, you need to deal with that uh, information, that data. And it was around before this video was made. And I would encourage Paul to, to uh, deal with that information information when he makes a case like this, because um, Sean McDowell is very much a part of the, uh, you know, group of apologetics, apologists that are, you know, doing things and active today and speaking at conferences and debating people. And so uh, if you're going to present a case against the resurrection, hypothesis, you're going to need to deal with this data about the deaths of the apostles. We have evidence for the deaths of the apostles. The claims that they didn't die martyrs' deaths flies in the face of the evidence that we have from history. And this is something that actually happens quite a bit when people are constructing these hypotheses. They will, uh, they have to argue like 100% of the evidence, we, even if you don't like the evidence we have, 100% of the historical evidence that we have counts for something, count, points in the direction of A happening, and zero evidence from history points in the direction that A didn't happen. Um, so you got to deal with that historical data whether you like it or not. Did others died for the belief? The martyrs probably believed it, but they weren't in a position to know. There are, uh, there, there, of course, there are going to be people who died for the belief that weren't in a position to know, but the uh, earliest disciples of Jesus were in a position to know. Gospels are eyewitness accounts? No, the Gospels are anonymous. Uh, the Gospels are formally anonymous in the sense that the, the authors don't give us their names. They don't say, I wrote this. But if you follow the literary conventions that we have, you can make a really strong case. And uh, you can also look at internal stuff to the Gospels. There's a whole field around this. And so I presented a brief case here in my video on Bart Ehrman. I also make a, a, a fuller case for that. Or you can just pick up Richard Bauckham's book or um, Mike's book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? He gets into some of that. There's a lot to deal with here that, that is just being brushed aside, I think. Could a supernatural miracle explain it all too? Of course, but since a supernatural miracle can explain literally anything, anytime, ever, the question really is, can it be reasonably explained without a resurrection? If you're honest with yourself, you'd have to admit that I have, even if you prefer the miraculous version for some reason or another. And to be sure, there are other ways the presence of Christianity can be explained without invoking the supernatural but I think this one works well. Okay, so... 
Paul, let me get off of your end screen here. So I, I, I want to say, you know, he's, if, if I'm going to be honest, I've got to admit, he says that he's presented a reasonable naturalistic explanation. I don't think that's the case. I think Paul is reasonable, uh, but I don't think this is a reasonable explanation because I, I've laid out a lot of things in this video that I think are very problematic with this hypothesis at almost every turn. And so, no, I don't think this is a reasonable naturalistic hypothesis. And I'm trying to be honest. I'm really trying to be honest. I went and checked out the evidence that was provided here. I, I called uh, New Testament scholars that I know. I, I even checked with, a, I got indirectly into contact with two uh, uh, Orthodox Jews who are functioning right now, trying to uh, trying to get answers to this business with the Mishnah and the Tosefta. So um, I've, I've done everything I can. I'm trying to be honest. And no, I don't think this is a reasonable explanation. Again, Paul, you're reasonable, but this is not a reasonable explanation. Uh, I love you, but uh, I, I don't think this makes the cut. So I hope this has been beneficial to you. And this has been a long video, an hour and three minutes. I'm sorry about that. But um, uh, I think I'll bring it to a close now. I look forward to reading your comments. Did I miss something or did I misunderstand something? I'm sure you'll let me know. I don't even have to ask. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.